Hello, this is Deacon Tom. Welcome to Deacon's Pod. Deacon Dennis here. Glad to see you guys. So today we have with us, because Deacon Drew flaked on us, Tom, is that what <laughs> Yeah, happened? I think so. Is he back he, in Puerto Rico? He, he kind of said something about work. I don't know. I don't buy it. Yeah, no, it's not work. You know, he's, he's <laughs> at this chalet in Puerto Rico or yeah. whatever. But anyway, we have, as Deacon Drew said by his own admission, we have raised the IQ of this group at least 35 points by having Deacon Mark Aslan <laughs> with us. Welcome, Mark. Welcome, Mark. Nice to see you today. Hey, it's great to be back. Yeah, yeah very so good. you're a Paulist affiliate deacon, which is how you get entangled with this crew. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Mark. Tell the listeners who you are and why you make us look good. <laughs> well, I am in Bethesda, Maryland, and I am, as you say, one of you. I'm a deacon here in this area in the Archdiocese of Washington. I have been in this area for about 20 years, but I'm a New Englander like you, and I have a background in Chinese language and literature and continue to dabble in that some and have been very much enjoying the ability to work with all of you in helping to reach out to those in the margins and find ways in these times when we have some real challenges in our church to help bring back folks who might feel disenfranchised by some of the challenges and some of the problems that we've had. So you have a background in Chinese literature. Here's a fun fact. Tom and I, we have a background in Chinese restaurants. <laughs> so what what about the rest of you, Mark? You married, you got kids, you got grandkids? Yes, I'm married to an architect, and I have a daughter who's out in California. She's a lighting designer for music venues, pop and rock music and she's out of college just a couple of years so mark what's your favorite part of being a deacon aside from hanging around with us well that's a pretty big that, that's a given you know right? i think for me there are various i i enjoy my various ministries especially spending time with the poor and helping those who are challenged in getting enough food but just in general i think as a deacon what i enjoy most of all it's just that interpersonal one-on-one -on -one contact with people who will identify with me because they've seen me at Mass and they feel that they can approach me, oftentimes with a problem that they're having. And we can just go and, and maybe I'm a little bit less intimidating than a priest or at least some priests. And they just see me as a friendly face and they'll come and, and uh, talk and we can just sit and, and I can listen. It's that accompaniment piece, right? That we talk so much about. Yep. And just accompany people where they are with the, the challenges that they're facing in their lives. I mm -hmm. think that for me is what I get the most personal satisfaction from in, in being a deacon. By the way, how long have you been ordained? I'm a relatively new deacon, just coming up on four years. So time flies. It seems like I was just ordained. And a lot of that has been during the pandemic, right? But it has been a real, a real joy for me. Well, you're a real joy for us, right? Yes, Tom? indeed. Yeah. Really, Man. really nice, nice people. Well, it's a real pleasure for me to have the privilege uh, among my brothers here to introduce our guest today, Dr. Jessica Koblenz, who's going to talk about her experience with depression 
and a theology of life with depression, which is the subtitle of her book, Dust in the Blood. And so I think we're going to have a very interesting discussion about depression in the context of our faith as Catholics. So, my friends, today we are honored to have with us Dr. Jessica Koblenz as our guest. Dr. Koblenz is an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. In her recent book, Dust and the Blood, she argues for and contributes to an expansion of Christian ideas about what depression is, how God relates to it, and how Christians should understand and respond to those suffering from depression. Welcome, Dr. Koblenz. Welcome to be with us today. Thank you for having me. I think, sad to say, we turned the nightly news on and we were confronted as a nation, as a society, mm-hmm. with so much work to be done, so much suffering, literally, suffering to be, yeah. that's being experienced. And and that's a subject that you're uh, right up to speed on. And I think it would be nice to share with us and our listeners your personal experience that brought you to writing this book. And we'll go from there. Happy to share about that. And thanks again for having me. To talk about this really important, and as you said, unfortunately, timely and urgent topic in church and in society. I, when I started studying theology as an undergraduate, did not expect that I would ever write a book like this on depression. From a young age as a Catholic, and certainly when I started studying theology, I realized that I had a special passion and interest for questions of suffering. I've always been fascinated by how the Christian tradition can inspire people to fight for justice, to mitigate the structures of oppression that cause a lot of suffering in our world. Christianity can be a great comfort for people who are suffering in a whole host of different ways. But also Christianity often directly and indirectly contributes to a lot of people's suffering through the teachings of the church at times that people really struggle with, sometimes even the indifference of Christians, I think, towards people's suffering can really hurt them. So this interesting tension between Christianity as a sort of balm for those who suffer and as a sometimes as a cause of suffering was something that really intrigued me. From early on. And that interest carried me all the way to doctoral studies, where I started thinking about what I wanted to focus on as a theologian. And at a time when I needed to start making decisions about where I was going to lean in for my own research, it just so happened that I was hit with a really difficult episode of depression that stretched on for more than a year. And It was this really debilitating experience of depression that helped me sort of take the initiative to get some more help for my own mental health and to get some more education about what I was experiencing personally. But it also revealed to me that despite many years of theological education and at that point, many years of professional Catholic ministry, I had not yet encountered very many resources in the Catholic Church to help people who are going through what I was going through, which was particularly alarming to me as somebody who'd been interested in suffering for a long time. Like I had been reading 
all sorts of different theologians from all different historical eras talking about various forms of distress. And yet there was very little that was directly speaking to the kind of mental health struggle that I was trying to deal with in my own life. And when thankfully I started to recover from this severe episode of depression and returned to my doctoral studies and research, I realized that I wasn't the only one who was struggling with conditions like depression. I was sort of at the precipice of what now I think is a real positive shift in our society and church where people are talking about this much more openly. And so that was an occasion for me to see, you know, there's a lot of people like me who are suffering with depression and other mental illnesses. And that means that this is a big problem, that we as Catholics don't have a lot of theological resources that directly pertain to this. And I saw that as a need that maybe as a theologian, I could try to address with the privilege of my education and my vocation. And so that led to this book. Yeah, I was going to say there, there are probably a lot of undiagnosed cases right out there. The whole there are people who experience sadness in their lives. And then there is real depression as a mental illness. And you detail some of those cases in your book. There's a difference there, but it's, I think, for a lot of people, hard to tell the difference sometimes, isn't it? It is. And where you draw the line between kind of normal, though difficult sadness and much more severe debil debilitating depression is often difficult. What's more, you know, not everybody in the United States has health insurance and you need to go to a doctor to get an official diagnosis, right? So not everybody has access to that. In addition to that, many people feel reluctant to go see a healthcare professional to get a diagnosis, either because of a sort of suspicion of a psychologist or counselors. Some people too feel like once I have a diagnosis, I'm going to experience stigma because I'll be identified with a mental illness, which in our context, you know, comes with a lot of negative associations, many of which aren't actually accurate. But the reality of the stigma is there, and that also complicates these numbers. You make that distinction so well in the book about, you know, you wake up in the morning, you're depressed, you lose your job, you have, you go through, you know, life's events, and you have a hard time moving on. That's not to be the same in any way as the depression that takes hold of you in the way that you describe where you've lost an identity, you've lost where you are, a total disorientation. Is that something you come in and out of? Is that from your book? I get the understanding that you can move forward and have good days and move beyond that, but the fear is always there that you're going to get sucked back in. Is that the reality of people who suffer chronic depression? For many people, it is. And I think part of that fear of recurring severe episode comes from the fact that, as I say in the book, depression is, for many people, much more encompassing. It's a much more radical shift in people's experience than we often talk about when we associate depression with sadness in general, something everybody experiences from time to time. Depression for a lot of people is as you said, a, a radical shift in how they experience themselves. And therefore, it can feel like a radical shift in identity. People often feel really stuck when they're in a severe depressive state. 
And that also contributes to a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. So even for those who do recover, and I should say most people who experience even severe episodes of depression do recover. And there are lots of great treatments and medications to help people, even who experience very severe depression, to learn to cope with it and to live good and meaningful lives despite that or amidst that depression as they move forward. But even often when people do recover to a certain extent, that knowledge that in the past, they found themselves in a really helpless state can be scary to know that this is something that we can try to mitigate, we can try and cope with, but it is out of our control. And learning to live with that knowledge, not only in theory, but because you've experienced it, can be frightening or can just be a difficult truth that depression sufferers live with. You mentioned a couple of the uh, theologies that, you know, those who see it as a moral evil as one of the theologies and then have to deal with their illness in that regard, or a test from God. And those are interesting indeed when you start to think from the personal, that first person standpoint. Both of those are kind of challenging in their own right, aren't, aren't about to lift your spirits. Like, okay, God is either punishing me and, or I've done something wrong, you know, the Old Testament. Or uh, this is a test and I'm suffering in ways that I can't figure out how to get out of the box. So those were very helpful in me helping to understand what could trigger some of this darkness and uh, dislocation. Because if that's all you had to deal with, which is a, wonder, a wonderful part about your book, how you unpack more ways to to cope with that and to find meaning. So can you talk about the, those existing thoughts and how you moved forward to using the gift of imagination to help sufferers in our roles? How do we recognize in our parishioners and provide some meaningful, helpful support for their condition? One of the really interesting things that I discovered when I started doing this research was that while there wasn't very much sort of academic theology talking about mental health and depression in particular. There was a lot of chatter about depression on Christian websites, in Christian self-help books, and certainly, according to social science data, in, in our parish communities, in our local church communities. And oftentimes, people didn't think of themselves as, you know, sort of espousing you know, rigorous theological truth claims. They were just mm. sort of responding to the suffering in their own life and in their communities as best they could with the kind of Christian ideas about suffering that they had at hand. And you're right that what I found was that there were certain patterns in how Christians in the United States were talking about depression. One, as you said, is that people were associating it with sin, so they're saying, you know, depression is itself a sin. As Christians, you're supposed to be a joyful person. Joy is a sign of the spirit. And so if you are a depressed person, this must be a sign that you're in a state of sin or that God is punishing you for some other sort of sin. And while you're right that many people, especially people who are already worn down by depression, when they hear that, it's very discouraging to them. There are a lot of people who take solace in this view because it explains why this thing is happening to you that you can't seem to control, right? God is punishing me. I must have done something. And if that's the reason, then I know what to do about it. I'll respond to this depression like I respond to every other sin that I slip into, which is 
you know, I'm going to repent from this. I'm going to work really hard to be a better, more faithful Christian. And if I do that, then this depression will go away. So, so some people do find that really helpful. Another view of depression that circulates in a lot of our communities, particularly Catholic communities, is this idea that depression, often like other forms of suffering, is a sort of gift that God gives you, a cross that we are called to bear in order to grow in our faith, grow closer to God, learn some profound spiritual lesson that God is trying to teach us and can only teach us through something as difficult as depression. And once again, you know, some people find great comfort in that, right? They say, God cares about my suffering. God is doing something here, even if it really sucks. Like something good is going to happen, right? Everything happens for a reason. There is some purpose behind this. People sometimes find great comfort in that. But again, there are plenty of other Christians who hear that message and it sounds to them like like toxic positivity. You know, you're saying something good is coming from this. I don't see any good in what is happening to me as a depressed person. And so in that sense, it can feel like a dismissal of how really difficult this is. It can also, for some people, raise questions about what kind of God would teach us exactly. things through yeah. such through this way, right? If God wants to teach me a lesson, why not some other way? And so I try my best to honor the fact that, especially for people who are desperate for answers, desperate for ways to make meaning of their suffering, and desperate to do so in relation to the Christian community and our God, for some people, these theologies are really important. They're sort of lifelines to God and lifelines to stay connected to their community. But as a theologian, I'm also concerned about everybody else who isn't very satisfied and hope-filled by these theologies. And that's where I think pastoral ministers, theologians, other Christians should be looking for other ways to think about depression and how God relates to this condition so that for those who aren't satisfied by these views, we have other things to offer them, to help them process this really difficult experience. Do you have an observation as to why you attribute the sin aspect, that theodicy, with, against the Catholic, or more Catholic, I guess, idea of that there's something to learn from depression? I, you mentioned that in the book, too, and I, I was kind of curious as to maybe some of the underlying reasons for that. Are you asking, like, why don't we hear this sin view of depression in Catholic communities more often? Is there a reason? That would be one. Th- yeah, that would be yeah. one, one way. Yeah. Part of it might be that these views. I'm glad the- that's the case, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, because I, we I don't really. We don't really pay attention to the Old Testament. <laughs> That's why. So a lot of that doesn't filter into us. You know, everybody, you know, when do you preach? You preach on the gospel. You know, if you preach, you fall off the pew if someone started doing a, a homily based on the Old Testament reading. That's my guess. But, but I could see how, Dennis, even stories in the gospels where Jesus is encountering sick people, you know, there are questions about whether a person is sick because of their sin. At times, Jesus, part of the healing is Jesus says, you know, repent, (laughs) change your ways. And that's a a part of the sort of 
formula in the text for Jesus's healing. So I could see if we're not careful that whether we're teaching from the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, the Gospels or Paul's letters, that if we're in a community that's disposed to thinking about illness and psychological distress in terms of sin, in terms of even like demonic warfare, like that's something that comes to mind in a lot of these communities that see depression as a sin or a result of sin, they are in Pentecostal contexts where they think a lot about sort of demons taking advantage of vulnerable people, and you're vulnerable when you're in a state of sin. There's not as many Catholic communities that think about the work of the Holy Spirit and demons in those ways. It would be interesting to investigate whether charismatic Catholic communities might be more disposed to these ways of thinking. To complicate things further, with these communities that think a lot about the influence of demonic possession and its relationship to sin, like a lot of people talk about their depression as feeling like being possessed by something. That's a way that they express the helplessness that they feel. So even in in an experiential way, there's reasons why it can make sense to some people to talk about depression in these sort of spiritual warfare terms. Whereas in Catholic communities, that's less common, like I said. But I I also think there is a, a long tradition of talking about other forms of suffering in the Catholic community in terms of, like, like I said, a cross that we should bear. Or even, you know, we have this rich spiritual tradition of conditions like mystical experiences, difficult mystical experiences of desolation or of the dark night of the soul, which as Catholics, we recognize as real spiritual conditions, even though they're really difficult. They're difficult, but God's doing something here. And often I think when Catholics are reaching for resources to make sense of the difficult experience of depression, they turn to those. Could it be tied into that Catholic imagination that Dennis you brought up earlier, right, that we look for ways of explaining difficulties that we're going through using stories and our imagination. And so maybe that's why we tend to gravitate toward trying to tell people, well, maybe there's something that you can learn from this experience Mm -hmm. where you go on and say that's not always the case. Yeah. And I think the impulse there to use the stories that we have available to us in our community to help people navigate their lives is a really good impulse. Like you said, we do that for all sorts of aspects of our lives. My concern, though, is when the stories that we have available, whether they're the stories of scripture, whether the stories of our spiritual tradition, when the frameworks that we have available to us are not helpful to people, then we need to go back to the scriptures. We need to go back to the teachings and practices of the church and say, are there other other things we haven't looked at that might be helpful? Other stories, other frameworks that might be helpful to people. To follow up on that, I think you devote quite a bit of time under you know new theologies to help people cope with suffering. When you unpack uh, the story of Hagar, I mean, we've all read that story, but you present it under this condition. It's phenomenal how what we miss and how much new shedding new light on these old scriptures just unpacks a whole bunch of good therapeutic help for us to, to fill in the missing places that people are still looking aren't aren't feeling healing and yeah just a remarkable story like you're walking over the entrance of a gold mine 
Yeah, when, it's contemplative. Yeah, it's a contemplative much. reading. Yeah. That's what I thought when she pointed that out. I've Man. seen that little piece, that little pericope a number of times, and I never even paused over. It's like, yeah, okay, what next? You know, why don't, uh, doctor, why don't you just walk us through the Hagar story to remind our listeners what it is? Because you're going to be referencing that a lot as we go forward in this interview. Mm-hmm. Hagar is a woman in the book of Genesis from the Old Testament, and she's a very minor figure, like you said, easy to overlook. She appears in the stories about the patriarch and matriarch Abraham and Sarah, and Hagar is a an enslaved woman in their household. And what we learn is that when Sarah cannot conceive a child, Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham to conceive a child for them. And when she becomes pregnant, she eventually finds herself out in the wilderness. She flees because of the harsh treatment of Sarah, who is jealous. In the wilderness, away from Abraham's clan, Hagar has a very profound experience of encounter with God. And this is actually in the sort of chronology of the Old Testament, the first time that somebody names God. There's this beautiful exchange between Hagar and God where they have a conversation. And God actually tells Hagar to return to Abraham and Sarah's family to birth her child. And so she does that. She births the son Ishmael. And we meet Hagar a little later in the story of Abraham and Sarah at a point when Sarah has now a child of her own and unfortunately is still quite jealous of the child that Hagar has birthed, Ishmael, and so asks Abraham to cast out Hagar into the wilderness against her will. And Abraham consults God, concedes, and uh, Hagar and her very young son are cast out of this clan into the wilderness where, according to the text, she lives the rest of her life. The last thing we really learn about her is that she's so afraid for her life, for her son's life, that she cries out to God for help. She's afraid that her child will die of thirst and can't see a way of survival for them. And God opens Hagar's eyes to a well of water, a spring of water that she was not aware of. And we learned that this spring of water helps her and her son survive. And eventually her son grows up and is married off. So that tells us that they did, in fact, survive in this really difficult terrain. It's easy to overlook the story itself. And then when you do read the story, there's nothing obvious about it that has to do with this contemporary experience of depression. But just like you all do as preaching deacons, you bring the text into conversation with the needs and reality of people today. And what I discovered was that when I brought this story into conversation with the experiences of people with depression, including my own experience of depression, there was a lot that surprisingly resonated. So often when depression sufferers talk about their suffering, they describe it as a sort of displacement into another world, a whole other experience of themselves. And it's a world that's difficult. It is difficult to survive. It's difficult to flourish, certainly. 
And they often feel, as I mentioned earlier, a sense of being stuck, of desperation, and a real difficulty with perceiving how they can possibly move forward with their lives in this difficult new reality of depression. And it struck me that this experience of being displaced into another world, another landscape, was analogous to what Hagar experienced in this second wilderness experience where she was thrown out of her home against her will and could not perceive a way for her survival and her son's survival until this sort of miraculous intervention from God. And one of the things that struck me about the way that God intervenes in the story is that God doesn't rescue her. (laughs) He doesn't, you know, wave the metaphorical magic wand and, you know, bring her back to civilization. She continues to be in this difficult place, but God helps her see new possibilities for living amid her difficult condition. And after reading lots of experiences of depression, I recognize that that's how a lot of depression sufferers talk about their own experience of suffering and survival. That it's not that the depression magically goes away all at once. It's not always just one thing that makes all the difference for a person's recovery. It's often small things, the realization of new possibilities for getting through the day, for living, that really makes all the difference. And I saw that in a new way in Hagar's story when I read it from the perspective of depression sufferers. I thought that the whole, I think, of awareness of God's presence, thats that was the only thing. Like, well, there's no happily ever after here. It's what a takeaway that is, as like Dennis mentioned before, trying to get into the contemplative mind. That would be a good day for us to realize at any point in time that God is present, no matter what we're, the good times, bad times. We would do that maybe with somewhat of a rational mind that embraces contemplation and making that quiet time. So I, I can only imagine that if you're suffering and you're looking for something to grab onto, that's a golden nugget. If you can capture that God is with me through these times that I wish I could in my own somewhat right mind, remember that during the course of the day's events that God is here, God is with us. We don't know mm-hmm. where this journey is going, but we can have that faith and trust that without knowing the end. So that was, there's many more takeaways from that. That's only mm-hmm. one small piece. Well, and I think often we miss God's presence, right? It's hard to remember God's presence because we have a lot of preconceptions about mm-hmm. what the markers of God's presence are in our lives, right? We think if I'm suffering, then God must not be here, right? And I actually think these popular theologies of depression that we were talking about earlier feed into that kind of small view of God's presence, right? If you believe that depression is a sin and you repent from your sin and you're still suffering, then it can be like, well, God's not holding up God's end of the bargain, right? I repented. Why is this still happening to me? Or if you see depression as some special site of divine instruction and you persevere in your suffering and you persevere and you don't see any goodness coming from it, then again, you can say, well, God must not be here then because because God's not holding up God's side of the bargain. There's nothing good that's coming from this. I think sometimes these theologies that are meant to keep us connected to God actually limit our ability to perceive the many ways that, as you said, God can be present. And I think in this in the story of Hagar, I'm challenged to say, you know, I would love for God to be present to her by 
just totally rescuing her from her situation. But that's not how God shows up. And the way that God does show up does make a difference. Maybe it's not our ideal, but it still does make it still does save her life and she still does take comfort in it. And I think it's important to give depression sufferers and all Christians the tools to perceive the many ways that God can show up so that when we are in these desperate situations, we have eyes to see it. Well, let me ask you a question about why, because you focus on this particular story in the desert wilderness with Hagar, but you tease me in the book with the desert tradition of the desert fathers and mothers and St. Anthony, the f- John Cash and whatever. You could just, we got a ton of wilderness stuff to work from in we our do. tradition. And you just teased me, Doc. That's all you did. <laughs> I ain't getting no Anthony, no John Cash, and none of the hermits. Stay tuned Saint for Ron the sequel. Come I got on, wait. Of, this is yeah, the first you, of many. You get to write that book, Doc. <laughs> so why did you pick this? You could have, I'm saying you could have gone with some other things, which were, obviously positive wilderness experiences where people were close to God and found God. And you said, you know, Hagar is the key that you worked off of. So why did you stick with Hagar and just tease me? (laughs) (laughs) No, why didn't you do the other stuff? Why, what is it about the Hagar thing that you find so appropriate for talking about depression? The thing that struck me about Hagar's story is that as we are just discussing, God is present and God's goodness is apparent in helping Hagar find a way to survive. So God is there. There is some goodness there. However, unlike many other stories of the wilderness in the scriptures and in other texts in our tradition that deal with the wilderness, God's presence is not accompanied by an explanation for some sort of purpose for the suffering. For example, oftentimes I'm thinking of the experience of the Israelites in the desert after, you know, being liberated from slavery in Egypt. There are all these stories of the Israelites wandering through the desert. And there are times when in in the stories of the Exodus, we see God intervening and present to them. Often when God intervenes, we see in the text explanations for why the Israelites are suffering. So God's saying, I'm doing this in order to test your faithfulness. I'm doing this to teach you a lesson, for example. And while that's great, and while that tells us that, you know, sometimes we are learning lessons from suffering. Those are real experiences that we have. What I found when I was looking at depression was that there was a need for Christian stories that acknowledge that we don't always know why suffering happens, (laughs) right? That God does not always reveal to us why this happened. It, It doesn't seem like it was because I was sinful. It doesn't seem like it was to teach me a lesson. Nevertheless, God was there. And I was drawn to Hagar's story because that's what the text presents us with. There is no explanation for why Hagar lives the rest of her life in this difficult place. There's nothing about her sin. There's nothing about some like good lesson that she gets from it. And I think we have too few of those stories in our churches. We often 
I think, cling to the explanations. We like to speak very confidently often about what God is and isn't doing. But I think if we're really honest, there's lots of times when we don't know what God is doing. And part of what I'm trying to argue in the book is that's a Christian position, too. That can be a faithful Christian tradition, too. And we do have stories in the tradition that also acknowledge that we don't always know what's going on. There isn't always a purpose. There isn't always a meaning that we discover. And that doesn't mean that we're unfaithful Christians. It also doesn't mean that God isn't there. So I wanted more stories like that. I Mm -hmm. will say, though, that you're right that there's so many wilderness stories in our tradition. And one of the most exciting things for me now that this book is out is that I'm constantly talking to people who say, what about this, you know, wilderness mystic desert father? What about this biblical story of the wilderness? Mm -hmm. What if we read that from the perspective of depression? And from my perspective, I say, go for it. Like, let's do it. What I want (laughs) is for Christians of all sorts to be thinking about how depression relates to these stories and resources Mm -hmm. in our tradition. We need a lot more on this. This strikes me as, you know, an example of the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. The idea that, you know, we don't know everything, that we are very little children of God, and that, you know, for all we know, this is the early church. You know, the church is you know, 10,000 years in the future, we'll look back at us and say, oh, those people on Zoom with their podcast, early <laughs> Christians, you know. But there is this ongoing, of course, as Catholics, we, you know, we believe greatly in the Holy Spirit is leading us and we grow in our understanding of faith. And this, I think, you know, you're kind of on the forefront of a new insight into this with this idea that there isn't always an answer. Because mm-hmm. the DNA, I would submit, you know, I, I think that the DNA of the Judeo-Christian tradition is explaining suffering. Hmm. That's what we do, whether it's, you know, oh, well, Israel, you know, I'm your prophet, and I'm going to tell you, you're in exile for a reason. Hey, you screwed up. God's not mm-hmm. happy with you. He's teaching you a lesson. Or whether it's the Christians looking back at Isaiah and, you know, by his stripes we were healed, finding meaning, you know, we're, we're coming in as we do this podcast to Holy Week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is what we do, you know. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the constant question to Jesus about the people who were sick was, is it his sin or his parents' sin he's being punished for? Mm-hmm. Which Jesus always rejects, by the way, always. It's for mm-hmm. the glory of God. It's for something else like, you know, get over the sin. He, apparent, as far as I can tell, he rejected that. But very common now, never mind then. So I think this is a new insight you're offering us that there is a position here that we can have where we don't offer simple and not helpful, even though the intention is to be helpful, little theodicies, little explanations of why God is doing this, like we had lunch with them. You know, we could recover exactly. a little bit of that Jewish <laughs> awe and who am I to speak for God? A lot of Christians talk like they had lunch with God, know what his favorite color is and how you should vote. You know, and it's like, well, you know, he's not talking to me. I need his phone number. You've got a better line than I do. But I think that this is a real kind of a breakthrough, what you're suggesting here, that in and of itself, even apart from depression, should be developed. I was blown away by that when I read your analysis of Hagar and how you connected it to that whole idea of accompaniment. But 
without the meaningfulness, right, an explanation, I, that just really opened my eyes to the whole idea of for people who are suffering in general, right, mm-hmm. that there doesn't have to be a reason for everything except that God is with you through it. You do describe, though, the idea that it's okay to come up with alternate stories, if you will, to help to give people other ways of helping to explain for themselves what they're going through. Is that right? That is right. And I think I come at this very pastorally, I think, as a theologian. Like, I think we know on an intuitive level as friends family members, as pastoral ministers, for those of us who do this work, that there are just some times where a person who's suffering doesn't need us to, like, explain to them what's going on. Like, that's just not what they need on an intuitive level. And I think I'm taking that pastoral intuition that I think many of us have experienced, and I'm trying to highlight a a sort of intellectual layer to that. It's not just that I secretly know what God is doing here, but I'm not going to tell you because you're suffering a lot and it's going to hurt your feelings. It's actually that intellectually, there are just some things we don't know. Humility. What a concept. Humility. Humility. We got to go now, doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, pastorally, I think intellectually, it's the honest thing to say often. It's like, I don't know what God is doing here. That said, those of us who have accompanied people in pastoral settings, or again, just as friends or family members, know that there are times when people say like, I want to think about what God is doing here. I want to know how to make sense of this or how to think about it, at least in relation to the Christian faith. And it's in those instances where I think having lots of different resources to offer people is really important. I don't think we should be telling people this is what God is doing as if we know, but I do think that We should be equipped to accompany people who are searching, who are asking questions, who do want to know what the Christian faith has to say so that we can help them explore the tradition from the place that they're in, if that's helpful to them. So this this is like being the director of the spiritual exercises is what I was thinking when I read this, where, you know, you come in, for the people who don't know, it's a retreat kind of thing, and sometimes 30 days long where it's an in-depth retreat where you are meet with a person, a director, a spiritual director who accompanies you. Mm-hmm. And then based on what you tell them as you are praying, reading what's coming up, how you're feeling, what's going on, they might say to you, so say you're in a period of desolation, they may say, okay, for, and then you come back like, what is it, twice a day, three times a day, you meet with the director. And so he sends you off or she sends you off for a couple hours and they'll give you some scripture and they'll say, so you're feeling, you know, really down or whatever, not necessarily depressed, but you're, you know, you're kind of blue or whatever. And they might say to you, okay, I want you to take this passage of scripture and pray on this for a couple hours. And then you come back and talk to them about, well, what happened when you did this? And they might give you Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones, you know, son of man, can these bones live again? And, you know, in that you start to do this process that you're talking about, Dr. Jessica. So, did that have any tie-in? Because that's that's what struck me is what you were 
suggesting that now that we get to the practical level, what to do and what not to do, how we can help one another, whether you're ordained or not, we all are in this position. I mean, every funeral you go to, this is where I learned the truth of what you're saying. There Mm -hmm. is always someone saying something stupid to someone who's bereaved. Mm -hmm. You know, God Mm -hmm. needed another angel. That's why your daughter died. And I just want, I don't know whether I want to punch them or just, you know, bang my head against the wall. And you hear that enough, just being a deacon and and burying a lot of people, you, you see that behavior and you just go, this is not helpful. And you learn that there is nothing I can say as the minister. I don't have the answer, but mm-hmm. you accompany them. You put your arm around them. You listen to them. You yes. be with them. You know, that's what you do. There's no snappy answer from theology school that I missed or something. But anyway, all of that came together in my mind as I was reading your proposals. So what is it that we should do? Give us some idea. Like, what are these stories, these other images we could propose? What, you know, we kind of know what not to do. What are you suggesting we do to help people? Well, building on your reference to the spiritual exercises, one thing I think that's really beautiful about this practice in the Ignatian spiritual tradition is that it's a sustained practice, right? Whether you're doing an intensive retreat for 30 days or you're meeting with people, you know, as you said, multiple times a day for a whole month, or whether somebody is engaging Ignatian spirituality through long-term spiritual direction and accompaniment where week after week or month after month, they meet with somebody. It's that sort of long-term sustained spiritual accompaniment that I think is really relevant to what I am exhorting here. It can be really tough to accompany somebody through depression. It can be hard to bear with yourself when you're going through depression because for many people, you know, this is a long-term struggle. Episodes can last for a long time. And as we mentioned earlier, many people, myself included, have had multiple episodes of severe depression in life. And so it's a it's a long-term condition for a lot of us. And that means that those who are accompanying people through depression can't just deliver a casserole and pat themselves on the back and be done with it. It demands, I think, real commitment and support from loved ones and friends and churches. And especially when these kinds of spiritual conversations, theological conversations are a part of that accompaniment, that means like long-term patient listening and accompaniment of people and real attention to what people need theologically, pastorally. One of my favorite passages from Pope Francis is from his apostolic exhortation on holiness, where he sort of meditates on the Beatitudes, and he has this beautiful couple paragraphs about mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. And one of the things that he says there is that we live in a world that discourages mourning. And it's clear what he means there is like, we're so distracted and we're so encouraged to seek pleasure and ease and comfort. And he says, we're taught to sort of avert our gaze from suffering. I think this happens on a societal level, on an ecclesial level, where we just try not to pay attention to certain difficulties of suffering in our world. But it can also, I think, happen on a personal level, you know, where we just don't 
have the patience to really stick with people who are suffering. Sometimes it's, it feels uncomfortable. We rather pursue easier, more pleasurable things in our lives. But I think it's a spiritual practice actually to, to mourn with people. And that's true when it's the kind of grief you're talking about at a funeral, to not just jump to easy explanations that feel good, but to actually meet people where they are and suffer with them. I think it's true with depression as well. We're not going to know how to help a person, what theological resources they need, what material resources they need, what communal accompaniment they need, if we don't actually hone our spiritual practice of what Francis calls mourning or just really difficult accompaniment. I think once we do that and we hone our ability to bear with people who are really suffering in inexplicable and uncontrollable ways, then we start to see, I think, some ways that we can practically help them. So like I said, different people might benefit from different theological resources, different stories from our tradition like the ones that I try and mine in the book. But I think also our call as Christians is not just to pass along nice ideas about God, but to actually help to actualize the kingdom of God in our midst, which is not just a nice spiritual idea, but a material reality. And so like sometimes depression sufferers need someone to help them find a therapist or a doctor or navigate health insurance or clean their house or take their kids to school or like just relieve some of the the big and little realities of life that just become exponentially more difficult to navigate when somebody's suffering from depression and and I I would like to think that the church as a community is equipped to mobilize to help people in these ways that their material reality is is equipped to mobilize around social issues to support depression sufferers like healthcare reform and things like that. But what I've found even in my own spiritual walk is like it's a lot easier to just give platitudes to people or to, you know, mention depression in our intercessory prayers every Sunday, a great thing, but it doesn't actually demand very much from us. Long-term spiritual accompaniment does Long-term material accompaniment does collective action to support people in concrete ways asks a lot more of us. Maybe what we need to start thinking about, as you were talking, I was thinking about the closest thing that exists in the church on a widespread basis to what you're describing is grief ministry. Hmm. You often have these things in parish where people have lost a loved one or whatever, and maybe the next thing is we have to develop a ministry for people who are suffering from depression that in along the same lines with the resources and training people and having people come together and to reach out and you know like like we do with the grief ministry like a similar kind of other track well let's do it paulus so bringing people together to share experiences for one and but knowing someone who has been a long-term sufferer it's hard to a company. That's a whole special training that you need because it's a difficult walk. It's a difficult walk because A, if you're not really trained, you get pulled into that darkness. And I'm thinking of a person we've known for years and she's lost all her friends probably because Mm -hmm. we're not trained. We weren't trained and we didn't recognize the difference between what you described so well in the book about that unhome-likeness. Like what a 
a unique word to express just the image and concept of like totally alienated and lost. But mm-hmm. that was my thought is as you put the word out, you see more and more interest that maybe we can get some people who might be interested in doing this because if you got some remedies and it's helping, you, you know, people will come if they can get some support. And I think that's pretty much the accompaniment in this area would be a listening ear with no definitions that enters into the mystery because, you know, the Lord's in charge. As we get into the Easter season, we talk a lot about joy. Those of us who want to accompany others or as, you know, in ministry, whether we're delivering homilies, how do we handle that? That's a great question. One thing that studying depression has attuned me to in the Triduum and Holy Week more broadly is oftentimes we rush to resurrection. This is an expression that theologians who work on experiences of trauma, which is another form of suffering, right, that is persistent, that doesn't just magically get cured for a lot of people. It lingers. We often rush to resurrections. And this happens in really practical ways, like drives me nuts. I shouldn't be so hard on people. But like on Palm Sunday and on Good Friday, oftentimes I'll hear preachers begin by saying like, well, of course, like resurrection, we're going to be happy. Like we, all of this is, you know, against the backdrop of resurrection. But today I'm going to talk for a few minutes about suffering in the cross. On one hand, they're absolutely right to say, like, of course, we everything we do is against the backdrop of the resurrection and this hope that we have in the resurrection of Christ. But sometimes it's nice to have a space, particularly a liturgical space in the church, to recognize that Easter joy is not palpable in every dimension of our lives. And like, I'm sometimes trite about it with friends who know I think about suffering a lot, but I'm like, I just want one day when I can be sad in church. Holy Saturday. (laughs) Holy Saturday. Come on in. There's no one there. (laughs) Well, that's what a lot of theologians who caution us against rushing to resurrection will point to is Holy Saturday. Is like, you know, Jesus really did go to hell. That is what our tradition teaches. He really, he was really separated from God. And I think we, we forget that we dismiss that that's actually a real experience that a lot of people have too, because we're, we want to, we think we're being reassuring by saying like, oh yeah, yeah, Easter joy, but I think a lot of people feel like we erase the difficult experience. So I think in, in the same way that I think preachers often qualify Good Friday in light of resurrection. (laughs) I wonder, too, whether there are ways as preachers that we could acknowledge as we celebrate the joy of Easter that, like, not all of us experience the joy of the resurrection yet, (laughs) right? That is maybe what we wait for in hope. That's good news. But just because we don't experience it right now doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us, that we're unfaithful, etc. You were involved in another very difficult ministry, the ministry to young adults, which is not getting any easier, is it, Tom? No, but <laughs> the good us. news is the young adults are getting older. Yeah. And so we know you worked at the Paula Center in Boston as the young adult minister for a while. And of course, our little dog and pony show here, we're trying to reach the marginal people, the people who are on the threshold 
either coming in to the church or on a threshold going out. That's our audience that we hope. Anyways, that's who we're trying to gear this for. And we always ask our guests what they would say to people either on the way in or on the way out. For new Catholics and Catholics who are who are on the way out, as you put it, my hope would be that our rich intellectual tradition as a church could serve them. And I say that because one of my great privileges as a theology professor is I see how some of the great theological writings and spiritual writings of the Christian tradition help a lot of people regardless of their religious affiliation or lack thereof. There is something about suffering and the great mystery of suffering that for many people inspires really big existential questions. Is there a God? If there is a God, what is that God like? What is that God doing amid suffering? Who am I? What should I be doing about my suffering, about the suffering of others? And I think not enough people know about how many Christians have been asking these questions in really diverse contexts and from really different intellectual perspectives for a long time. Because of this diversity and long tradition, there's not one Christian answer on suffering. There are lots of resources for thinking about suffering. And I would hope that for people coming into the church or leaving the church or adjacent to the church or in in some other religious tradition, that being in conversation with some Christians in this intellectual tradition who've been asking the same questions as they have, maybe from a different context, could give them life and more to think about that feeds their not only mind, but spirit. That's certainly been one of the sustaining things in my experience as a Christian and in my accompaniment of young adults at the Paula Center and still today as a professor. Very good. Very good. Yeah. We're inviting the seekers to come and check it out because like I say, we have a rich tradition. And again, we'd like to uh, share the conversation with them. So again, Mm -hmm. Dr. Jessica Koblenz, thank you very much. And we look forward to following you and the good success in all your work. Thank you so much. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacon's, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org that's p-a-u-l-i-s-t dot org love to hear from you that's our offering we thank you for being with us on behalf of our colleagues at the missionary society of saint paul the apostle we wish you a future brighter than any past till next time